Welcome to the Craig Selinger Podcast. Sit back and relax while listening to popular topics from educators, therapists, and doctors. Craig Selinger, New York City speech language pathologist, learning specialist, owner of Brooklyn Letters and Temba Tutors, will break it down so you enjoy learning more about a wide range of topics by connecting you with experts in the field. Welcome. Today we have Dr. Jane Aronson, Clinical Assistant Professor of Pediatrics, Wild Cornell Medicine, Founder and former CEO, Worldwide Orphans, Director, International Pediatric Health Services, Director, Global Behavioral Health Network for Children and Young People. Hi, Dr. Jane, how are you? I'm, I'm good, Craig, and I'm happy to be uh, seated in the West Village and um, looking out at the snow and feeling nice and comfortable and safe in my environment, especially safe being with you because you're you're a very warm and cozy guy. Oh, thank you, Jane. Thank you so much. Thanks. Let's t- let's tell the audience tell tell everyone more about yourself, um, okay. about your professional ex- your training and your professional experiences. Well, I I um I had the good fortune actually, uh, in in the last probably seventeen months since I stopped uh, running my foundation to really uh, uh, look at my life and, and look back. Uh, and, and you know what? It was, uh, it was a lot of fun because I have been fortunate uh, to, to do a lot of different things. Uh, and and, and I'm, I'm happy to have a moment to talk about how when you do a lot of different, uh, when you have different adventures in your life, uh, whether it's work or education, you, or travel, you, you get to uh, bring it all together at a certain point in your life. And I feel like that, that part of me has come together in um, a, a beautiful puzzle, if you will, that now where all the pieces fit. And so it's a very fun thing for me to chat about it. I actually did Grand Rounds, which is a kind of a, a presentation that's given to academic physicians um, at hospitals. And I did a virtual yesterday. I've done many of them in my career as a physician. And I did one yesterday for 157 psychiatrists. Oh, wow. That's a lot. This virtual uh, uh, mode of communicating has done uh, wonders, actually. Wonders for, uh, for uh, com- adherence and attendance. Uh, because Grand Rounds, you, you know, clearly is a place where you, you go to an auditorium, pretty as it might be, with lovely seats <coughs> and a podium <coughs> and a screen. And doctors stand in front of them, <coughs> and uh, and talk about research and findings that will better, uh, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> the human condition. And then you're fitting it in between maybe morning rounds, seeing patients who maybe were admitted the, the night before, and you're squeezing an hour of learning, which you need for your <coughs> your continuing medical education credits. And then the rest of your day, which is filled. When I grew grew up, I, I grew up living above my father's grocery store in Jamaica Queens. My my parents worked in the store. They worked together in it. They were both college graduates. My father had come home from the war and decided to you know, go into a business and had some family members who supported that. And so he had this grocery store in an African American neighborhood. It was a diverse neighborhood likely with Latinx individuals as well as African-American and God knows who else. 
-hmm. And so that was my life early on. My brother uh, was six years older than myself, six and a half years older. And um, I, from the very beginning of my early life, I wanted to be a doctor, Craig. Interesting. So why, so how did you know? Very, very clear because my family, though, my father went into this business and my mother became a teacher, a school teacher and got her master's degree actually in education. Uh, when I was, uh, you know, a school age child, she went back to school uh, twice a week in the evenings. The, the family, my father's side of the family had amazing, amazingly uh, uh, giving, loving um, people who were in science and research and medical science. And my great uncle Joe, Joseph D. Aronson, uh, was a, an infectious diseases physician. Oh, no way. Look at that. And he took care of Native Americans in the Plains states uh, with regard to their um, unfortunate epidemic of tuberculosis. And he studied those populations of Native Americans <clears throat> and did lots of amazingly and important research, which you know altered public health policy for the United States in that we, we, we decided to use uh, a vaccine, uh, which was uh, formulated in France, Bacille, Calmette Guerin, uh, that vaccine had, you know, a sort of a rocky course, if you will. It was great at preventing meningitis in young children, but its efficacy uh, was a large range for adults to prevent TB of the lung. So wow, okay. what happened is he studied Native Americans to see what would we do with that vaccine? Would it be a good idea or not? And it was discovered that it likely was not a good idea to use the vaccine. And instead, we did skin uh, testing for TB so that we could <clears throat> do contact tracing. Mm -hmm. And and the old-fashioned infection control uh, pattern and protocol could be used to help trace who had TB and stop it through those mechanisms. And that was really a great way uh, to prevent the, the spread of, 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 of TB. So I grew up and then, then, then there were other doctors. He had children and their children had children. And many of us became doctors um, because we were extremely um, um, in love. We were literally in love with Joe. Uncle Joe was a nice man. He had beautiful white hair like mine and he uh, was casual, wore corduroy cuffed pants and moccasins, and a crisp white shirt and a bow tie. Oh, cute. <laughs> and, uh, and I visited with he and his wife in uh, Wayne, PA, as a young child. And I was very taken with my uh, father's family. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I, I wanted to be just like Joe. And I became uh, my uncle's daughter, if you yes. will. Yep. And uh, I think that uh, he was a nice man, by the way, a very nice man, and hobnobbed with Albert Schweitzer in Africa. Oh, wow. You know, it was a it was a time in the 30s and 40s and 50s in medicine where people were discovering vaccines and ways in which to thwart infection in poor communities all over the world. Mm -hmm. And so he was a global health specialist in in effect. And that is what I ended up becoming. So he has a very important part in my early life mm -hmm. and in my life, in my head. Mm -hmm. My head, my kepi, as we say in the Yiddish. Yes. 
is filled with uh, very inspirational individuals. Now, my father, of course, was very inspirational, very. He was such a nice man. He taught me all about social work in the community where he lived. The people were not able to pay their bills on time. And many of them had were on welfare and waited for their welfare check to arrive. And my father kept all the accounts in a little uh, spiral bound little book, plastic black book with teeny little rings and white paper with thin spaces. And he wrote with a pencil and uh, didn't have a pencil sharpener when often just use a sharp knife to, uh, to sharpen the pencil. And all of the accounts were in the book. And he would then do home visits. Checks came in. Everyone got what they needed, whether it was bacon or eggs or potatoes or beer or Uncle Ben's rice or uh, black eyed peas, whatever it was that the customers needed in the store. My father gave them what they needed. And then when the checks came in, he'd go and visit and I would go with him. And we'd walk up the dark stairs with a light bulb hanging without a shade. We'd watch the cockroaches scurry. <laughs> and yep. then we'd climb to the kitchen. Yeah. They would give my father a cup of uh, Postum or Nescafe yep. instant. And I would sit on his lap or I would play with children who were may have been in the family. And he would talk to them about how they were doing and what their jobs were like or what was going on in the family. And then he would say, what do you want to give me? Mm -hmm. And um, was a powerful lesson for me to hear my father say, what do you want to give me? What do you want to pay me? Mm -hmm. And so he took whatever they could give him. And I then, uh, you know, moved with my mother and father and brother to Long Island, when, and that was in 1953 or 54. My father qualified. So why, why did you move to Long Island? They, my parents like were like many young Jewish educated uh, individuals, families. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> my father uh, served well for during WW2. Mm -hmm. And uh, they wanted a better life. And, and better education for us. And so my, my father qualified to buy a ranch house, which was built by the Levitt yes, family. Yeah, yeah. And they paid $10,200 um, and obviously got a mortgage and we moved to Franklin Square, Long Island. Okay. And, you know, speeding all of that up, that's where I grew up. And I had <clears throat> a, a very lovely block of children who I'm still, who I still know. And oh, wow. with. and my, my brother was an athlete and much of our life in those early years really were about either pop one or football in, in, uh, uh, in South Jamaica where mm -hmm. we live. And then onto uh, Long Island where my brother excelled as an athlete and played three sports. And I sat on a bench or was taken care of by lots of coaches with ice cream and candy <laughs> while I watched my brother either practice and scrimmage or actually <clears throat> uh, watch competitive sports. And even today's, today, 
I received an alumni award from the high school years back from Valley Stream North High. And in the, in the uh, glass cases outside the gymnasium are, it still remains the history of the high school all the way back to the 50s and my brother's photos are in there. Oh, wow, it's amazing. Yeah, well, you know, old fashioned, a high school that was seven through 12 and never changed. Mm -hmm. And so I grew up in that neighborhood with my friends and my family and uh, was, you know, it was a, it was a nice way to grow up. It was a, a, a very interesting neighborhood, which was a mixture of, of um, Christians and Jews, mostly Christian <clears throat> and some Italian, some Irish. And, uh, you know, it was a little bit of a melting pot to some extent, not the same as what I had in the first few years, which was really an inner city look at life. Mm -hmm. But I, I feel like those were very formative. And they were very formative years because they, they really made me aware of, <clears throat> of the world. There was no question that I was aware of the world in a way that other children were not. Mm -hmm. And um, something happened to me <clears throat> during those years that was a result of what happens to everyone. You are, a, you're a, a kind of a, you, you become who you are because of your circumstances, but particularly the time and the history you grow up in. And I grew up in a tumultuous time of history where there were lots of assassinations, uh, Martin Luther King, Rob, Robert Kennedy, and of course, in my seventh grade, JFK. Um, and so those were very amazing times, you know, so 63 and then 67, <clears throat> uh, Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy. And, and they had an effect on me in so many ways. There's no question for me. I was already, because of my father and my uncle Joe, I was an advocate for the underdog I was very involved with high school and junior high politics. So I was always advocating for whatever the cause was. I cared about causes uh, because I had that influence from my dad mm -hmm. and also from my rabbi. So that's another little mm -hmm. piece that has to go in. And that is that, mm -hmm. so I had my father, I had my uncle Joe, and then I had my rabbi. Um, and, um, you know, he was just an amazing guy. Um, you know, Rabbi Saperstein, Harold I. Saperstein, uh, had two sons, um, and both of those sons, Mark and David, became rabbis. And David actually led the Hebrew Union College, um, the, the political organization that, that kind of exists in D.C. or whatever. He was the head, the chief honcho. I think Mark went off to be a rabbi in England uh, at some point, but but David followed very much in, in Harold's footsteps. Harold Saperstein was a global rabbi. He was a man who didn't just <clears throat> exist in the, in the Temple Emmanuel in Limbrook, Long Island. He traveled all over the world to study Jews in other countries and brought back those stories and messages to us to share with us what Jews, what were the, what were the life of Jews in other places, whether it was the Soviet Union or China or South America, wherever he went, he came back to tell us the stories. And I was very influenced by 
his storytelling. Mm -hmm. And I felt that he was a standard of intellectualism and, and, and philosophical uh, uh, thought early on in my life. My mother did not choose to use the, the temple local to Franklin Square, which was in West Hempstead. That was a temple that was all about wearing minks and jewelry. <clears throat> and my mother uh, was very suspect of that kind of a Jew Jewish education. So she looked around and found, we weren't Orthodox, so there was another, Ortho that was an Orthodox temple down the block. And she found the Temple Emmanuel, which was reform. And that was an early part of the Jew Jewish reform movement. Mm -hmm. And that's where I went to uh, Saturday school and Sunday school and Hebrew school until I was 16. Mm -hmm. And so I was confirmed and not bat mitzvah. My brother had a bar mitzvah <clears throat> at the temple, but there was no bat mitzvah uh, at the time uh, that reform Judaism was sort of developing and forming. But his, his, there's another, there's the other layer than another person, a mentor. So my father, my great uncle Joe, and then Harold Saperstein, mm -hmm. these were very important people in my life who were constantly reminding me of things that I, I mean, I was always kind of looking up and listening. My, my facial expression, photographs of me, I'd be looking and I would be thinking. Hmm. I had a lot of ideas. <laughs> and all during those years, I always wanted to be a doctor. And my, I guess my best and favorite moment is, uh, and this will be part of the book I write, and that is about the bee hospital. I had a bee hospital. I collected insects around the neighborhood who maybe were injured slightly, or maybe they were at the end of their life cycle, who knows? But I collected them and I put them in little boxes with cotton. They're little like jewelry boxes that my mother had. Mm -hmm. And I made a hospital out of <clears throat> cardboard boxes that I cut up and glued together. And everyone in the neighborhood, anyone you might ask, they all knew about the bee hospital. I tried to make the insects feel better. Mm -hmm. And I put a little sugar water in a eyedropper and I fed them. And probably most of them died, Craig. Mm -hmm. But, you know, uh, or, or if they lived, they lived because they were just meant to, to be alive and I didn't kill them. <laughs> <laughs> but the bee hospital for me was a, you know, really a commitment. It was a child's commitment to, to a dream that I would someday be a physician. And that drive, that commitment was undying, no mm -hmm. matter what path I took. And I took many paths. I taught school for 10 years and there were those around me, my family and friends, who clearly you know, must have thought I was Meshuggah. <laughs> and uh, that I was never gonna get anywhere, that I was just a hippie and, uh, but I, <clears throat> I went to med school at 31. I had many wonderful adventures up until that point, teaching school, particularly science, coaching sports. Mm. Uh, I was a professional photographer. I went to photography school. For no a way. Year. Wow. And 
And then I you know, went on to have a lot of different adventures, if you will, growing up on my own. My parents were finally not all that supportive of my wanderlust, if you will, not really believing that anything would come of it and doubting and not really respecting uh, what was in my soul and what was really going on with me, not understanding the, the struggles that I was uh, involved in, which were you know, just coming of age, growing up, and they were not trusting. It was a time when people really didn't understand adolescence mm-hmm. and didn't tolerate growth and development other than what they expected. And I was, uh, in a sense, disenfranchised by them. Uh, by the time I was 19, they didn't want to support me financially any longer. And uh, it was a very unusual thing for Jewish parents to do, but they did it. And then I uh, was in college a few years and then went to Hunter in New York because I, I became a resident of New York City and I was able to go to school free. And uh, I had many jobs as a photographer and a carpenter. And a and carpenter, a, really? Yep. Wow. And a, bar, and a bartender. And a bartender. And so I was able to earn a living um, and take care of myself and pay rent. And, um, and then, uh, you know, was able to finish college on my own. I should have graduated in 1973, and I didn't graduate until 1976. So, so during this time, you, you know, you you were probably not uh, on the best terms with your parents. Did you did you have role models or or any any adult figures that were emotionally supporting you during during this time period? Um, <clears throat> no, I, I I don't think I did. I think that Craig, I I. I have, I think you already know, I have a lot of energy, like mm-hmm. my mom. My mother was a very challenging character in my life, not not comfortable, nurturing, very judgmental, <coughs> very stylish, attractive, mm-hmm. and highly educated, master's degree. There were hardly anybody on the block. The women were not educated. Some of them worked, but most of them were at home and not educated. And my mother had a master's degree and an, a very high IQ. And she was driven to do her work as a teacher mm-hmm. and guidance counselor. And <clears throat> she even taught at Nassau Community College. Oh, Nassau. nice. Oh, wow. So she was ambitious. And my, you know, my recollection of things were basically that, you know, they, they really didn't understand. They didn't really understand what was going on with me and they didn't trust that I would finally land somewhere because it was a circuitous pathway. Mm -hmm. My brother went to college. He went to Ohio Wesleyan. He had scholarship for sports. He played football for four years and was a college, you know, uh, you know, hero, if you will, won all the the awards you could win. He was the first string quarterback by the time he was a second year college student. And and then went on to become an orthopedic surgeon. No way, wow. Um, But not directly. He went uh, for a master's in biology and then had to deal with the draft. 
and um, and so went off to Guadalajara for a year, mm-hmm. crossed the border to Texas and passed the boards and was able to transfer to an American medical school in Maryland and um, graduated and, uh, and then went off to a, a, a surgical residency and was very successful, had uh, four children, two marriages. He was a very important part of my life. Mm-hmm. He, he becomes the next in the list mm-hmm. of people that I had. Um, uh, so you asked me the question about who was around me in those years. My brother um, was mostly my my mo- my best parent, if you will. Mm-hmm. As I grew up, he was my favorite parent. Even mm-hmm. though I loved my father and my mother, she wasn't all that nurturing, and he was working. And my brother was, you know, really very sweet to me, and recognized my intellectual ability, and. Was, he was just very, uh, he was filial, uh, very kind and sweet. And he recognized that I looked up to him mm-hmm. and I enjoyed that. Um, but then I came out as a gay woman in 1971 mm-hmm. and my brother was not happy with that. Oh, uh, okay. And neither were my parents. Got it. It was very challenging. Those were early years for people mm-hmm. You know, people kept themselves in the closet. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly in the early 70s, people started to come out. And that was not a popular thing um, at all. Mm-hmm. So, but I, it was a great moment for me. I was so happy to discover myself and to feel comfortable mm-hmm. and to see the future as positive and also as something where I could be authentic, which is what my father and mother taught me to be. Mm-hmm. My father, my father always stressed the fact that you have to be yourself. He wanted me to always be myself. So it was kind of interesting how that all played out. But during those years, those were lonely years because you know I then you know had to I had to develop a an, a, a, a a community which was you know which would be defined by me in a way that was interesting and in that. My community was not completely gay. I, I, I bridged and lived a life where I had lots of straight and gay friends. Mm-hmm. And for years, I just always talked about how I just want to live like a person in society. I, I want to get married mm-hmm. and I want to have children, mm-hmm. but I want to do it my way. Mm-hmm. And I felt that that would be my destiny. I had those hopes that I would become a doctor and that I would get married to a woman, that Mm -hmm. I would have children perhaps and Mm -hmm. live the American dream. Mm -hmm. And and I was very fierce in in that belief. And I lost friends, both gay and straight actually, who really didn't, didn't enjoy my drive and my commitment to this new world. They thought enough is enough. You should be, you should accept and be happy with whatever you can get. Mm-hmm. That is never how I felt. Mm-hmm. Not then and not today. So I had a, a, a time during those years where I carved my own path, where I continually stood alone mm-hmm. and had to be brave and lonely. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and my brother was no longer in my life in the way that I needed. 
but he didn't disappear completely. He was always there if I had had a need, if I needed some money or something, uh, some advice, uh, if I was really scared. He stepped up, and though disapproving, he stepped up to a place where he believed in me. And um, it was really pretty interesting, actually. And then, uh, you know, I went about my business. My brother had a nice marriage and had two children in that marriage while he was in medical school and residency. And, uh, and, uh, and then that marriage fell apart after 12 years. I became very still close with his first uh, wife. And my young niece and nephew were very dear to me. I spent a lot of time with them in those years. I had the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, they now are in their mid to late 40s. And I have, um, I think it's eight, is it eight or nine grand babies in my mm-hmm. life. Uh, my brother then remarried and had two daughters. And one of those daughters, I think, has four kids. And my nephew has three kids. So that's seven. Yeah, nine. And my niece, my brother's uh, first child, she has two boys who are, I think, 12 and 14. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm over the years, of course, time has passed swiftly, unfortunately, for all of us. Uh, and uh, I was not able to see everyone as often. Uh, but I then, you know, had a, 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 a relationship with someone who I brought up children with. Mm-hmm. So, and then I have uh, I adopted two children one at four months of age from Vietnam, the other at six years of age from Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. And they are now almost 21 and 23. Wow. So I had a, you know, the American dream, <clears throat> uh, uh, you know, marriage, uh, uh, a civil union just prior to the Defense of Marriage Act, uh, giving us actual uh, marriage licenses. There was the, um, uh, you know, the civil union, and then I had uh, <clears throat> a divorce from that marriage after 12 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, during all those years, I developed my professional career. So what happened to me is I went to med school at 31. And then, you know, peek into that story over the years, you'll see that now, you know, at, that, was, that was in 1982. Mm-hmm. And now it's 2021. And I became... Um, a physician, pediatrician, infectious diseases, HIV AIDS physician. And then I went into global health, adoption medicine, and ran a foundation for 22 years, working in 20 plus countries around the world to provide orphanage and vulnerable children with services. So let let me just interrupt. So so you have grit, persistence, um, and no matter what obstacles you face, you're like, bring it on, and you just continue to plug away. For those that are listening, and maybe they're, you know, whatever, wherever they are in life, and let's say they have challenges, they're paralyzed, they can't, they, you know, they have maybe visions of what they want to do, but they're stuck. Um, so how did you, what, what advice would you tell those people? It's a great question. Let me just stop for a minute. It's kind of an interesting experience to listen to myself talk about my life in in this way, in that every time I do it, uh, you know, it's not easy to do. And I always tell the story differently. It's like when I was teaching school, Mm -hmm. I never taught 
they were five classes I would have to teach mm-hmm. in science, whether it was physical science or um, uh, biology. <clears throat> and I would never, I would always try to move it around a little bit. I, I knew what I had to cover each week, mm-hmm. but I never taught the same thing because it was just too crazy making, right? And boring. Mm-hmm. And then I would learn from each time I taught something, I'd say, oh, I'm going to do that different for them. And then I'll come back and I'll share that with, with the people that I didn't do it with uh, on the first go. Mm-hmm. So what I, what, I, what I hear when I talk about my life is I'm full of, of joy right now. Mm-hmm. I have a sense of joy that's very unusual for me. I spend a lot of time uh, judging myself. I'm hard on myself. Um, I am anxious <clears throat> frequently because I think I haven't done the right thing or enough that I'm an imposter, I'm not credible. Um, I, I just second guess all my decisions, even though you know, in everyday life, I'm quite forthright and convinced that I am right. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, I, but I'm very, very easy to say, I'm sorry, and wow, was I wrong about that. You know, so I'm, I'm, I'm self-effacing and self-aware. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so I feel like now I've lived a life at this point where I actually have had a lot of hurt. I've experienced a fair amount of punishment mm-hmm. on many levels. Punishment in my own family, mm-hmm. lack of trust and lack, lack of love and commitment. My brother was the favored child. Mm-hmm. He was the favorite and he was favored. Mm-hmm. And there are so many examples of how I didn't get the kind of benefits that I could have had and that would have really put me on a different trajectory, which would have been easier for me. And then there's the business of being a woman. Mm-hmm. And that has been pretty miserable. Mm-hmm. As a woman who's assertive, bright, and caring, I've been really hurt and bullied. I've been bullied endless amounts of time in my life. So bullied that I'm black and blue from being bullied. Did you, at at those, I mean, at those times, Uh, did you recognize it as being bullied or is it now you're recognizing those moments? Well, I think it's both, Craig. I think I recognize in a more more articulate way the Mm -hmm. bullying. But I think that early on, I, I... was I'm very tender and fragile. Mm-hmm. Let me make this case for this conversation. I am incredibly fragile mm-hmm. and I'm hurt easily. Mm-hmm. And when I'm hurt, I feel like someone has been, uh, who ha- has planned to be mean to me. It's it, not would, an accident. Would you feel comfortable sharing an example where you were punished for, for, for being a woman? Or maybe- oh my God! Endless times. Okay. Not getting, not getting jobs, not getting into school, uh, you know. And I mean, more recently, I'll tell you a number of stories. But let me just say mm-hmm. that at this point, it's really important for me to tell you that I was sexually abused between the ages of four and seven. Okay. By my brother's gym teacher in Willow Road School, Long Island, mm-hmm. Franklin Square, Ed Burns. B Y R N E S, who's still alive. Oh wow! Okay. And 
he, my brother would take me to the recreation program on Saturdays. And after school, my mother was getting her master's degree. And so Barry was at the school being six years older than me, right? Mm -hmm. So he was a fifth and sixth grader and he was taking me there and I was Ed's favorite and I would put all the balls in the net bag and I would, um, you know, help him get the, 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 the gym was the stage. The, it was the auditorium gym, all one. And so there was a backstage office that Ed was in the athletic office. And that's where I would sit with him and um, he would jerk off mm -hmm. and, um, and, you know, I would be a dutiful little girl and whatever, mm -hmm. fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. And I would help him with the score sheets for the games. And uh, I climbed the, the, I climbed the rope to the ceiling and I did the scooters, you know, I that was part of the recreation program. And I went to that school and graduated from that school from the sixth grade. Mm -hmm. By then, my brother had finished high school. We never crossed over in the school. I would just see him if there was a fire drill. I might see him at the front of the high school when I was walking from the elementary school to go home. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, you know, that time was fascinating for, you know, when I, in retrospect, you know, what did I know about it? What did I understand? Nothing until I was quite a bit older in my teen years. Basically, by 19, I understood what had happened to me, but really didn't understand. Right. And didn't really understand it until I read a book called The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. Okay. That changed my life. That's one of the most profound and I think affecting book on post-traumatic stress disorder. Can, can you discuss that book? I, I've never heard of it. And, and just for the audience that might be interested in reading that book. Oh yeah, it's well known. Everybody- Oh, it is, is. okay, okay. Anyone who knows about trauma in, okay. in life knows the body keeps the score. Okay. And uh, Bessel van der Kolk is a famous psychiatrist. Okay. And, uh, and you know, a friend of mine who's a social worker and fantastic therapist, always growing in studying and being kind. My friend Maddie, she recommended the book. And that was probably within the last, I would say the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. And that made it clear to me, oh yeah, that did happen to me. Mm -hmm. That's what happened. And now I can see it, but I can't see it. And now I can see it and I can't see it, but it was clear that that's what happened to me. And then I was again, uh, sexually abused by my mother's allergist. Oh, when I was wow. oh my, my mother would, went to the allergist uh, to get her shots. And then, you know, <clears throat> she talked to the, to the doctor and said, I think Janie might have some allergies. My, my father had allergies. She would say my grandfather on my mother's side. And so I got tested and I did have allergies and I took shots and he had his office in his house in Roslyn, Long Island. And so I went there on my own after a while. So uh, at that point in time, uh, I recognized enough. I had enough, uh, uh, you know, um, I think fortitude, if you will. Uh, and I actually confronted the doctor. Wow. 
Okay. And I told him I would report him if he didn't stop touching me. And uh, he got scared and denied it. And I never came back for another shot. But I did tell my mother. And she thought that I was crazy. And she told me if I ever told my father, she would never speak to me again. No way. Oh, wow. I could never come back into the house. Oh, wow. Okay. And certainly there was no mystery there for me. No mystery whatsoever. I was already 19 at that point. And I had, you know, I really understood what this doctor was doing. This guy's a very famous allergist, Mm. a Craig, very famous and had an illustrious career in leadership in the world of allergy and immunology and um, had a lovely wife and uh, he's dead and gone, but uh, he probably did this to others and not just I'm sure, of course, absolutely. Um, And so it reawakened at that moment, you know, things that, gee, what happened with me when I was little? But, you know, I didn't get to that until Mm. many years later, uh, basically 50 years later. (laughs) Right. What does this mean about being a woman? Well, you know, it was just the whole idea that, you know, I always, you know, was in touch with the fact that my brother was favored, that young men and boys around me were favored, that I didn't have the same opportunities in sports. I was a great athlete as a kid and there was nothing going on. Uh, I played all sports in in school and so forth and even uh, played some sports in college, but there was no opportunities um, for it. And, um, and that's sad, you know, that that's a missing that I, uh, my brother's whole life was so affected by sports and, and, and actually uh, his great strength, and he would say this always was that he had the opportunity to compete and learn competition and discipline and physical well-being. Um, my brother died suddenly on a Saturday afternoon in um, 1986 on February 1st, the day after the Challenger exploded. Oh my God, wow. And uh, he died of a sudden cardiac event for sure. We don't know what the nature of that was, but he died with his four children in the basement playing and he was on a new rowing machine and, uh, and he keeled over and died. And, uh, and so I was a senior in medical school. Uh, I was a few months away from graduating and uh, uh, it was a loss beyond belief for my mother and my father. Uh, so destructive to my father for sure. Uh, my father died four years later at the age of 69 um, from uh, I would say a medical misadventure during cardiac surgery. I was chief resident at the time at Morristown Memorial, uh, well into my career. But, you know, everything around me, even though I've been so successful in my career, I, I really have to say I'm so proud of, my, of myself right now. Mm-hmm. I, I look at my CV and I look at a narrative. I write a narrative about my life and I look at what I've accomplished. And I, I'm always leaving things out because it's a long life and lots of things happen. And lots of things uh, were so wonderful for me. And maybe I've forgotten how wonderful a moment I had. Uh, I, I, I think I've, I've tried to remember all the good that's ever happened in my life. And I've probably forgotten some of 
the deleterious effects of my vulnerability. Um, and I'm like many children who get sexually abused or bullied, you know, fragile, vulnerable, at risk, but resilient. And that's really the right. yep. my life, which I think you're tapping into. And yes. is, you know, the grit and the drive and the ambition. Um, I'm incredibly unstoppable. I'm described often as fierce, um, you know, like uh, the drive of, uh, you know, like Tiger Woods and his drive, mm -hmm. <laughs> literally mm -hmm. the golf drive, right? Mm -hmm. um, I'm always described as, uh, you know, as, as that and resilient and ambitious and, and, and fiercely uh, on achieving, but for good. That is really the message right. that I yes. have, is yep. that for me, I'm aware of my vulnerability and my, uh, my fragility and how often I've cried from hurt at all points in my life, whether I was young or older, I always responded basically the same. I felt uh, abused and I felt bullied by by people frequently. And I felt a lot of it was because I was a vulnerable person. And on top of it, obviously, I was a little girl and then a growing young woman and then a woman professional. And I never got the same kind of serious mentoring by other, uh, by powerful men in medicine. Nobody turned to me and said, Jane, you know, I, I, I'm going to give you this job because you're great at what you do. I was the one who stood up and said, I want that job. Mm -hmm. No one doing that job. I want it. Mm -hmm. And I want to be paid for it. Mm -hmm. And then I had to withstand the bumpy ride of uh, criticism and, um, and undermined. I was undermined all the time by men in power and, and others who were rich and who felt they knew everything always questioning my abilities, never really recognizing, uh, you know, I think recognizing that I was intelligent and capable and then criticized mostly because of my vulnerability and my passion. People are very jealous of a person like me. Mm -hmm. Whether man or woman, there's a kind of jealousy that exists for people who care a lot who are vulnerable. But mostly what you'll find is if a man cares and is passionate about something, he doesn't get bothered that much for it. Mm -hmm. But if a woman is passionate and cares a lot about things, you're going to have people coming after that person all the time. Mm -hmm. And I've watched it in front of me and behind me, and I've experienced it repeatedly. And there's you know, a lot of times when I'm really pissed off and angry and and really troubled uh, about not being recognized for my talents and my gifts because I'm like all, all alone mm -hmm. advocating for myself and for the work that I needed to do. Mm -hmm. And always having to be asking for things that should have just been offered to me. And, and so I've had to really, you know, work harder. I'm a hardworking person. My father swept the floors of the store and worked sometimes 14, 16 hours a day. And he worked six and a half days a week mm -hmm. at the store. 
And his, his complete devotion to hard work was such an amazing uh, part of my life. You know, my father could even put on a, an apron and vacuum the floor or sweep or paint or build. Um, you know, uh, you know, we did a lot of things together, my father and I. He taught me to be a good athlete. And then you know, around the house, he taught me how things work. And then I would help him if he fixed the washing machine or the toaster or the dryer or the refrigerator. Uh, you know, I, I could have gone into the appliance fix-it business. Mm -hmm. You know, so there was always a lot of like doing. My father and I built new birdhouses every spring. Oh, nice. Um, my father bought a, a, a bird bath and we, we, he taught me how to look at birds and understand birds mm -hmm. and, know, and know the birds. Um, so I, I, my mother was, was the cultural teacher. She taught me about art. Uh, she took me to galleries and museums in New York and shows. And, um, you know, they, they both exposed me uh, to things that were uh, educational, very educational. I went to camp. When no one went to camp, I was the only kid on my block that went to sleepaway camp. Mm -hmm. And I took musical instruments. I played the viola and the guitar and the piano. Most of the kids on my block did not have the opportunity for that kind of, uh, of hobbies, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, um, you know, there were lots of outdoors activities. My father taught me to fish and, and how to run a motorboat and sail oh, wow. and water ski. You know, so then I went to camp and I was, you know, and I water skied and I sailed um, and I competed. And I, you know, I, I, uh, you know, I competed in a lot of ways, but, you know, but all falling short of what might have been, uh, you know, more available to um, to to boys, and that you know fell short of, of something a step above that would have really been probably have helped me so much to have more confidence. I'm not confident. Um, I I I often am insecure and um, and defensive, and that comes from a lot of punishment. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I don't say any of this with a complaint mm -hmm. in a way. At this point in my life, I'm 69 years old, and I look at my CV and I look at a narrative that I recently wrote about my life. And even my, the chief of service when I was chief resident in Morristown, I mean, the man has been educated like, you know, like he's a Harvard guy and came from Canada. He read my narrative the other day. I, we were in touch after a long time, and um, we had this lovely talk. And he's living in Andover with his wife, Dorothy. And I, I really loved him. He gave me such a wonderful year of education and an experience. Uh, I'm very, uh, uh, it was precious. I'm, I'm extremely grateful for it. And when I was, spoke with him on the phone, he was just so happy to be with me on the phone. And then when I wrote the narrative, he was so complimentary. He said, my God, what a great life you've had. You've done so much. I'm proud of you. Mm -hmm. And you know, I mean, so, and I was in touch with my program, my residency program director, who's about seven years younger than me. I was in med school later. So, you know, we were closer in age than, you know, uh, in those years when I was a resident, which is kind of unusual, but 
I haven't spoken to him in a long time. And he was just so incredibly respectful and admiring of my life and then shared some extremely personal and wonderful aspects of his life that were very sweet for me and clearly uh, uh, made me feel as if I was in the inner sanctum in, in his life. And I, and I was mm-hmm. for all those years. It was really special. But moving right along, the foundation was very successful. We Worldwide Orphans Foundation, which was founded in 97, was focused on, uh, 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 focused on uh, at-risk, vulnerable children uh, uh, who we wanted to help find access for healthcare, psychosocial support, and medical interventions. And we did that in 20 plus countries over, 20, over my 22 years. And we sent 412 service learners abroad to study and learn about uh, children in different cultures and to help bring back that information to inform uh, all kinds of academic people and people from many different backgrounds about how it is that children live in those worlds. And, um, and we did, we provided such pragmatic uh, ways in which to change children's lives, which meant preschool, elementary school education, sport and arts and music and theater and dance. And uh, we uh, were able to get access to uh, medical care for kids that uh, have lived with HIV AIDS. I brought the first antiretroviral therapy to children living with HIV in Ethiopia, Haiti, and, uh, and, and Vietnam. And, and then the rest is history because those, those programs then were subsumed by other providers of that sort. Some we kept managing. Um, I, uh, sold, I sold the Ethiopia HIV clinic to a, 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 a private company that took it. And that was a great moment. That was a wonderful moment where I could uh, achieve what we, we refer to as sustainability. I built mm-hmm. capacity and then sustainability. Mm-hmm. And um, Vietnam, we really, uh, we were able to get money from USAID PEPFAR uh, for years to really uh, uh, formalize the care of the children with their meds. And, um, and that saved hundreds of lives of youngsters who now are, are adults. And they're alive and well and have, went to school and got jobs. And we, we excelled in psychosocial support for those youngsters as well as in Ethiopia. And in Haiti, the HIV care uh, was really uh, assumed by GESCIO and other organizations that had come in early in the epidemic. And so we stuck with the psychosocial aspects and building capacity with mentoring for children in, who needed education, particularly uh, in toy libraries, which is really a kind of a preschool. And, um, and we built a sport program. So there were a lot of wonderful things that came. There's so many, so much, so much more. It's just endless what, what, what went on over the 22 years that I ran the program and all good role models for how to do global health. Mm-hmm. I'm so happy that, 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 that I left the foundation with all these wonderful programs and, and all the work that was done, but I, I want to do something different with it. Like I want, now I'm trying to, I made documentary films all the years that the foundation existed. Wow. So I recorded, I, I had, I learned how to make films and write films and, and then I hired filmmakers who then would produce and film. 
of all of the programs around the world and go on site to film them. And we had really great films every year uh, documenting the work. Um, and I, I want to get all that film together and make a documentary of the work. The high priority for me is um, uh, I want to get uh, my boards again, uh, uh, pediatric boards are every 10 years, so I'm studying. Um, and that's just part of, you know, what you have to do as a doctor, you always have to study. Mm -hmm. And I'm eager to go back to school, Craig. Really? Interesting. That's amazing. So what do you want to go back to school? What do you, what do you want to be? I want to, I want to be a psychiatrist. Really? Wow. Yes. Wow. Something I've always wanted to do. Wow. And so now I'm gathering up my paperwork and wow. off my applications and hoping for a miracle. That's amazing. Um, I have two sons. One, one's in college. One is not in college. Um, my youngest son who's in college will um, finish his junior year in May. And then he'll finish his senior year next May in 22. Mm -hmm. And my oldest son is uh, struggling with the kinds of things that sometimes kids can struggle with who've been adopted from a country at an older age. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that you know, sort of, uh, that's something I probably uh, won't talk about in this, in this talk, but I'll just mm -hmm. say that, you know, kids have, have had a very difficult time during COVID. Some kids have obviously left school and taken gap years. Some will return, some will do other things. Who knows what will happen? But um, Des is part of that. He's part of the, the COVID timing. And um, he's interested in uh, video. Uh, and so he you know, loves photography and movie making. Mm -hmm. And um, hopefully he'll find his way in that world uh, once everything calms down. And Ben is a psychology major. Cool. Well, Dr. Jane, I want to, first of all, thank you so much for sharing with everyone um, your story. And I think, one, the fact that you were essentially were vulnerable with us by sharing so many um, pieces of your life that I think, you know, m for many, I, I hope that would give them courage that maybe they're, they're uncomfortable or they, you know, they, they may not want to share certain aspects of their lives, which is, I think it's really, um, I'm just, as I'm listening, I mean, I'm, I'm a, a white man, but I, I, I think it, particularly for lots of people listening out there, it will give them the courage to see someone like you who's been so successful that you've had so many obstacles and you persevered um, and you continued on. And, and at this, at this stage in the game, um, you're happy. Um, you know, you, you could have been knocked down so many times um, and because you succeeded and due to global health, your legacy has been spread to so many children and families um, and you could have easily been, you know, knocked down and, 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 and not have gone um, as far as you've gotten. Um, and then I think, you know, it, it also, I think, gives people courage and, and hope for um, no matter what they want to do in life, you know, they, they, everyone's going to have certain obstacles. And, and I think to hear a story that you can still, you know, overcome your obstacles and be your authentic self and 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 if your passion is there, you you, you know you, to have the drive to succeed, you gotta you know you get knocked down, you gotta get back up, and um, and I think 
that that's something that uh, you know, just sharing this, it, it just shows you how, again, you, you, you got to this point in life because you, you worked your ass off and, and, and you, you know, you, you, you stuck to, you know, that passion and, and, and the persistence and the grit. Um, and I think, again, so many people get derailed and that that's, that's hard. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, people out there that get derailed, um, and uh, so this this is it's really a story of hope and um, and I can see in the book almost like the, the book cover being um, the story when you were a child and you were like that my the my B hospital B hospital yeah like I could see that well, as I, you know I wrote a book in 2013 Kathy oh you did oh yeah. I didn't know that oh okay yeah oh, well. uh, it's a book which is a uh, it's chapters that I outline the process of adoption mm-hmm. and then both you know, international and domestic, and then a collection of, of stories written by parents who adopted children. Oh, wow. And um, it's, uh, it's really an incredibly lovely book, which, you know, yesterday when I did Grand Rounds for the psychiatrist, I always choose when I do Grand Rounds to read a story from the book. I pick a, a different stories uh, that I find interesting and edifying and that I think drive home my my optimism through the optimism of of uh, of, of children and their families mm-hmm. you know adoption medicine really was my oh my i still do it i still help parents connect with uh, attorneys or um for domestic adoption or adoption agencies for international and i still take them through the process of an international adoption so i'm, I'm uh, still doing that and loving that that's like one of the most important parts of my life has been that work. Thousands mm-hmm. of people came through my door. Yes. And that was really a great moment in my life. You know, like yesterday, Craig, I did this Grand Rounds. Mm-hmm. I spent months working on it for these 157 psychiatrists at Cornell. But, you know, Cornell's a kind of a, uh, you know, a very formal, it's, it's often nicknamed the tower, you mm-hmm. know, men in white coats with, uh, uh, with bow ties and, 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 and white hair. And, um, you know, and I've, I've been both institutions, Columbia and Cornell, and I've learned so much from both of those institutions and lots of mentors there. But to be in front of, of, of 157 colleagues and to deliver an hour and a half of my intellectual abilities mm-hmm. and to, to have succeeded the way I did was, like, I tell you right now, was one of the greatest moments in my life. Actually. Really? Wow. The theme of who I am, insecure, fragile, vulnerable, mm-hmm. um, bright, mm-hmm. driven, ambitious, passionate, mm-hmm. caring for the world, right? Wanting to do good. Mm-hmm. And, um, and those moments when it all comes together are like crazy, crazy like a high. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That was beautiful. I'm really, I'm really happy to be, you know, for you to share this and hear it because it, it is very inspirational. Um, and I'm, I'm very excited to hear about your, your future endeavors. Um, yeah, and I want to thank you. I mean, I think it's so great that, that I ended up, um, you know, reaching into your network. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, as things develop and grow, hopefully, you know, more will grow as I move on in my career. And you're, you're part of it. Like, whenever I need to have speech and language, you know, I'm confident. In, in your work and I want to, you know, I want to continue to be, refer people and hopefully, I, fingers crossed, that will grow and 
and so on. But you're you're now part of you know part of the development of my life at this point. No, I I, I love it. Yeah. No, thank you. Yeah, and and we'll definitely uh, at some point when we in, initially met over the phone, we'll definitely have some sort of coffee or something in oh, in Manhattan sure. at at some point. Brooklyn. How about Brooklyn? Oh, Brooklyn. You're always, yeah, you're always, you're always welcome <laughs> to, to, to my home turf as well. But yeah, wherever you want. Those All right. Uh, you're very generous. I'm delighted and happy that you're okay. Please remain safe. Yes. Oh, thank you, Jane.